Welcome to Bethlehem Church Online. I'm Pastor Matt. I'm so excited that you decided to join us for worship today. I hope the singing and preaching of God's Word is uplifting and it gives you just what you need. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship or your walk with the Lord, uh, but I want today to be a blessing. I want you to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that today is encouraging and that it's just what you need. If it's your first time, make sure to click the link in the post and fill out that form. We have a free gift for you following today's service. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the service. So if you want to go ahead and get ahead of me here, you could turn over to uh, Exodus 15. Uh, that's where we'll be hanging out today. Now let's, uh, what's up James? Good to see you, man. Didn't see you come in here. I'm just calling people out this morning. That's what I like to do. And I know that it's really disrespectful, so I'm sorry if I've ever done that to you. It just kind of happens. Um, <clears throat> but so we're talking about, I think this is going to be real. How many of y'all have been a, a Christian for less than five years or, okay, a couple of you. How many of you have been a Christian for a long time? Okay, a lot of hands go up for that. All right, so I, th I feel like, and I hate to get super allegorical uh, when I preach, but I feel like this passage just kind of lends itself to be a nice... Uh, parallel to where we find ourselves in our faith sometimes. And what I mean by that, let's, let's take a quick recap of where we're at in the Exodus story where we find ourselves in chapter 15. Uh, last week, we talked about the crossing at the Red Sea, right? The Israelites, they were, you know, their, their struggle in Egypt has come to a boiling point. The 12 plagues have happened, like Pharaoh and his house and the Egyptians have lost their firstborns. Uh, the Israelites were just like shoved out of Egypt. They were like, here, take our gold, take our jewelry, get out of here. You know, we don't want you anymore, you know, which was great for them. And then, you know, then the Egyptians are like, wait a minute, our free labor is gone. Let's go get them back. And so this chase occurs where they're, you know, they're chased to the, to the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, rather, uh, whichever take you take on that. Um, and, you know, they're, they, they're in a place where they're like, man, the Lord really needs to do something. And they walk across this body of water on dry ground. Hi, Miss Sherry. Here I am calling people out again. Um, but um, they walk across this, this body of water on dry ground, and when they get to the other side, uh, the waters come crashing down on their enemies, and at the beginning of chapter 15, this is where we find ourselves, where the Israelites are now standing on the shore of the Sea of Reeds, and they've been delivered from their captors. They have experienced uh, they, they've passed through death, literally, and now are standing on the other side, and they're like, wow, that's crazy. And when I was thinking about it, when I was reading this passage, uh, a question came to mind that I feel like they probably would have been asking themselves. Uh, and I think that this is the same question uh, that a lot of us ask ourselves on maybe a more frequent basis in our, in our faith, in our life. Uh, what happens now? Right? Think about it. For them, they were, all of this has happened, and now they're on the other side of this, this body of water outside of Egypt. They're outside of the nation. They're just in the wilderness, and they're like, it's great. We've been delivered. We've been saved. Yahweh's our God. Like, that's awesome, but what, what do we do from here? What's the, what's the direction? What, what mode are we supposed to be in? And I feel like sometimes as believers and as Christians and just as, as people in general, we get in that same mode where we're like, man, it's awesome. Like, I got Jesus, life's great. And then we're like, okay, but I still got a lot of life left to live. So, like, what's that, what's that look like? What's the, what's the next step? What's the next thing? 
And so as we get in here, I want you to kind of keep that on the forefront of your mind that this is where they are. Um, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is where we're at a lot of the times. What is, you know, what does the Lord want from us? What is, you know, what's going on in our lives? And so, <clears throat> you know, I think we, uh, there's a couple thoughts here that I think um, <clears throat> relate to this topic that I think that this passage has a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight to help us with. And so, like I said, if we're transparent with ourselves, I think that, you know, when we're following Jesus, and how, how many of y'all can admit that following Jesus is not an easy thing to do? Is it just me that feels that way? Okay. So like a third of you are with me. That's cool. I got some good company in here this morning. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. And so when you're trying to accomplish that and you're trying to grow and you're trying to learn, uh, you know, you're like, man, like this is, this is difficult. And you start to ask yourself things like, is my decision to follow Jesus the significant? Like, does it actually matter? In the grand scheme of things, right? Like this was a, you're like, it's a big deal to me when I did it. And I'm like, this is amazing. This is changing my life. And then you start to think like, is it really, is it really that significant? Like when it comes down to the point of when we're restructuring our lives to, to make sure that like, you know, the basic things, right? Like, hey, I want to be in church every week, so I'm going to adjust my schedule for that. Or I want to attend a small group. I want to serve uh, in a ministry. I want to, you know, you know I want to have, uh, you know, devotional time with my family at home. We, we try to orient our lives around all of these things. We're building it in, and it kind of gets to a certain point. We're all busy. We're 21st century Americans, right? We've got all the things going on, right? Every family has kids that play like seven different sports, right? That's a thing. <laughs> um, and I'm sure it will be for my household when my kids get older. Uh, we got stuff. We got stuff to do. And so we kind of get to a place just through the, the rut of busyness where we're like, man, like, the, is this really worth prioritizing? Like, is this really like, yeah, I get that, like, you know, we should attend church, we should read our Bibles, but like, is, what is the significance in all this? That's something that we often wonder. And then it starts to creep in. Why aren't things going my way sometimes? Why now have I followed Jesus and he's with me and, you know, and I'm living, you know, hashtag the blessed life, right? Like, you know, we see all the Instagram posts from all these different, uh, you know, these different influential people that, you know, are following Jesus and they're on the beach every day, whatever. Um, and you're like, why isn't, why doesn't my life look like that? Why why am I struggling? Why is life the way that it is, even though I've chosen to follow Jesus and I thought things were going to be better, right? Am I the only one that's ever been there before? No? Okay. And then the last thing I feel like that this passage kind of deals with is what does God want from me, right? Because we're, we, we arrive to this place where we're like, okay, we're following Jesus. We're, we're, we're giving a go at this thing. We're trying our best. We're trying to learn, trying to grow, um, you know, we're, we're moving through the struggles, we're persevering. And then you're like, what is, what is all this add up to? Like, what's the, what's the grand plan here, right? What is the, what is my, you know, we feel like we have purpose, but then you're like, what's really my purpose? Like, what specifically does the Lord want from me? These are all valid questions. And I think these are all things that the Israelites would have been wondering about. And I think just by, you know, way of parallelism here, uh, I think these are questions that we also wonder about, things that we also struggle with. And so I think as we walk through this passage, I think that uh, this passage in Exodus has a lot, a lot to offer in regards to perspective on this. So we'll jump in here. 
this is really cool. So there's a lot of scripture today, right? Which, you know, I guess you kind of expect because we're in, you know, church and stuff. Um, but a lot of scripture to read, so hang with me. We're going to read uh, the first section of the chapter, which is the bulk of it. Uh, but it's 19 verses, and so it'll be up on the screen uh, if you'd like to follow along. But we'll be Exodus 15, 1 through 19. And this is, a, uh, this is called the Song of the Sea. So this is a song uh, where they've crossed the Red Sea, and they're just kind of rejoicing, and it's, it's composed by Moses, and they sing it together. Uh, so it's like, a, it's like a long poem, basically, that, that divides the chapter here. Uh, It says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps uh, were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in praises, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever. For the horses of Pharaoh and his char- with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. <laughs> So long passage, and you read that, and you're like, wow, that's, that's quite a song. <laughs> that's quite a song that we uh, might not sing in church today, right? Talking about people drowning in the ocean in various ways. Uh, but it's, uh, there's a lot to dig into, and if you have time this week, I would encourage you just to read into that a little bit, because what we're doing today, uh, there's kind of just a few components that, for time's sake, I was able to pick out uh, that we'll play with some, but there's just a lot. There's a lot in that little little thing that Moses wrote there. So I'd encourage you to, to dive into that a little bit. So first thing that we talked about, questions that you might be asking, is this really important? Does it really matter? Is my salvation, my deliverance from death that important, right? Because as believers, we know that by, you know, placing our faith in the finished work of what Jesus did is ultimately what delivers us. It is what gives us salvation. It's what gives us new life. And that is the, the ultimate form of an exodus, 
right? We've been talking about how this theme just recapitulates throughout Scripture, this, this idea of exile and exodus. It's a constant pattern that keeps, pattern that keeps repeating, um, and it finds its fulfillment, like everything else, in the person of Jesus. And so, is this really that important? Let's dive into that. What's the significance here? So the Torah, which is our, the, the first five books of our Old Testament, has several themes in it that mark a transition from one section to another. And if you've ever studied, uh, if you've ever studied like ancient culture or listened to anybody who's like an apologist, uh, a lot of what they'll talk about is how uh, the Bible and certain works of early literature were transmitted uh, by oral tradition. And so what we find in the Torah are remnants of that, where we see that there are like intermissions where there's a song or a poem that signifies like, hey, this is, this is the end, this is the earmark, that we're transitioning to a new part of the story, right? And there's like three or four large ones in, in the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, in Exodus 15, where we're at today, uh, 1 through 19 happens to be one of the larger ones and more significant ones. And so, is this really that important? And to that, I would say, you know, from a narrator, hi Rex, uh, from a narrator's standpoint, right, they're, they're earmarking this when they're composing this piece of literature, right? Because they had these historical events and they're wanting to cast them in a proper way to convey ideas to their audience. And so what they're doing is they're like, okay, number one, how do I establish the significance of what's happening here? Well, we're gonna make a clean break, we're gonna transition. One part of the story, completely new part of the story, right? We're transitioning through song. And so it signifies a dramatic transition from death to life. And we see this theme continuing to pass through our story in Exodus. So the Israelites were on the cusp of death. They literally walked through the, you know, the ocean on, the, on dry ground, and they've been delivered. They are now experiencing a whole new life. They're, they're essentially, they've been recreated, is, is the idea being created. Their calendar restarted. Like, they're, they're a whole new people group. And so what the author's doing to bolster that up um, is he's, he's, he's creating a clean break in the narrative here with this poem. And so that's number one. But where do we see this whole death-to-life idea? You're like, maybe that's pretty dramatic. Like, it, you know, they, they crossed through the waters, they made it, but, like, did they really, like, did they really actually escape death? And let's dive into that because there's some really cool stuff in here that I just want to show you guys. So um, <clears throat> how many of you guys are familiar with, like, Genesis chapter 1, Right? And the flood story, yes? So pretty, uh, you know, we're all a little, you know, we've got some, some ideas on that. Um, we're all a little bit familiar just by, you know, even by our culture, it's present, right? Uh, but if you've ever read it, you've noticed that there are terms that are used uh, that are kind of peppered throughout, you know, the first few books of the Bible here. And one of those terms is the deep, right? The Bible says that the earth was without form and void and the spirit of God hovered upon the face of the deep. Right, that's kind of the you know, that's the first page of the Bible, right? And then we move on to Exodus 15. Here, it's going to be up on the screen there, uh, 15 verses four and five. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he's cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them; they went in, down into the depths like a stone. And so, what I want to bring to your attention here is in verse five. There's two words there. There's the deeps and there's the depths. Um, and for whatever reason, right, the person who wrote this, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
Um, they chose to use two different terms for essentially the same thing. And one of those terms that they used, and I have it in the notes there if you want to read it, uh, but the Hebrew term is tehemot, uh, which is the, uh, the plural form for tehom, which is deep, uh, which is what we find in Genesis chapter 1. And so they're kind of like, you know, the deeps have fallen, they've collapsed on the Egyptians. And then uh, verse number 8 of chapter 15 here, it says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the seam. It's the same word, tehemot, right? The deeps. And so this word is used intentionally two different times. They didn't have to use this term because they used another one, right? But they're trying, they're using this vocabulary to hook back into a previous story that's in the, you know, in the same body of literature in the Pentateuch, right? Which is Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter seven. And so they're, they're putting a hook back into the story. Why is that? Let's read it. Genesis chapter seven, verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. That word there is tahom. And the floodgates of the sky were opened. So the point being made here, if you're tracking with this train of thought, I know this is kind of a lot. To, this is a new idea to take in. Um, but the point being made here when they're using this vocabulary is when they're talking about the waters collapsing on the Egyptians, they're using the same terminology for basically cosmic destruction from Genesis chapter 7 of how the deeps, you know, the windows of heaven opened and, you know, in ancient cosmology, they thought that the sky was a solid dome that had water over top of it. And when the windows open, it rains. That's, that's how they viewed the planet. Today, of course, I don't even know anymore, honestly. <laughs> you guys ever go in like a rabbit hole on YouTube and there's like very convincing videos like the earth is flat, there's a dome. And I'm like, honestly, like, I don't even know, man. Like, space is fake. What? I don't know. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know what to think anymore. Maybe the Israelites were right in their cosmology. Um, but the way that it's described is the fact that, you know, when God created the world, you know, he separated the waters from the waters, meaning that there are waters below, there are waters above. And, you know, that was his created order. He established it that way. And the land came out of the waters underneath, and that's that's where we walk, right? That's how they viewed it. That's how it's described in the creation narrative. And so in Genesis chapter 7, when the world comes to a boiling point where God looks down and he says, the heart of everybody is just, it, you know, is unsolvably wicked. Like it has to be, this has to be dealt with. And the way that it's described in the flood narrative is that they, they literally, because humanity has done so much of, of decreating and de-degenerating, like, I don't even know if that's a word, but degenerating themselves. You know, the, the natural response from the created order is to decreate also and to collapse on them. That's, that's how the flood is described. It is decreation. It is order, like becoming disorder and chaos once again. And so that theme carries forward into the book of Exodus. And when the waters collapse on the Egyptians, it's portrayed in the same way. This is cosmic destruction. Like, this isn't just like the wind was blowing and it stopped and the waters came in and wiped them away down the river. Like, the, the, the biblical writers are looking at this and they're saying, like, no, listen. Like, the way that God did this, like, this is cosmic judgment. Like, this is not just a, it's not just a thing, right? And when we read on, the cosmic depiction 
of the fall of Israel's enemies described, uh, <clears throat> describes their death as a descent into their own underworld, but more so that Yahweh has literally brought Israel through death and into new life on the other side of the Red Sea. And there's an excerpt there from uh, one of my favorite podcasts that I follow. It's really helpful if you want to go listen to that episode. Uh, but he kind of dives into Egyptian thought on death and the underworld. And there's a significant amount of evidence that, um, you, if you remember, I think it was uh, last week or the week before, but we talked about, it's probably the week before, uh, but how the Egyptians believed that Ra, the sun god, right? Which, if you think about it, like we know that the sun is a ball of burning gas, or we think we know that, right? <laughs> Uh, the, and we have a framework for that because of science, modern science, right? We learn this stuff from the time that we're able to understand, and it's just a part of who we are. Uh, but if I didn't know that, and I see this ball of light moving throughout the sky, I would probably assume that it was something else. Um, so the Egyptians thought that that was a deity. And the idea was that Ra, the sun god, would ascend every morning out of the underworld, and he would descend once again every day to do battle uh, with Mot, the god of death. And so I might be messed up on that name, but that's the general idea. Um, and so, you know, the sun would rise, and he, he's victorious over death, and he would descend again into the underworld every day. And the, the body of water, when you're in Egypt looking, that he would descend into was this body of water, the Sea of Reeds, that the Israelites crossed over. And so if you're an Egyptian, and you're looking at, you know, what's happening, like you're literally, when the water split open, like you're walking through what you perceive to be the underworld and your Egyptian, you know, what you believe about things. And so the way that the Bible's describing it, like the, the earth has swallowed them up. And that Hebrew word Eretz for earth in this passage is also interchangeably used to describe the underworld in the Hebrew Bible. And so what is happening here is, is there, you know, this, this song, this poem is portraying what has happened because you have like, you know, if you think about like boots on the ground video cam footage, I know I'm spending some time on this, but I feel like it's really valuable for us to get it. Um, <clears throat> but if you were just watching the event, you see people cross through. Some people make it, some people don't. You're like, oh, okay. But they take it to the next level with how they're describing it. And how they're describing it is essentially like the Egyptians cross through. And because the God of Israel, Yahweh, has control over the cosmos, not the gods of Egypt, he has collapsed and decreated the water on the Egyptians and allowed them to be sent into their own underworld. Like that is, that is what is being described in this song. And I know that sounds a little bit crazy, uh, but once again, we have to look at scripture through the eyes of those who wrote it. Like this is how it would have been perceived. Like this is how the Egyptians and the Israelites, like all of these circumstances together, like this is how they would have looked at it. And so when the Israelites are now on the other side and they're thinking about this. We're, they're like, we literally, like we literally walked through hell and came out of it. Like we crossed through death literally and came out the other side and God has delivered us. And if that doesn't make you want to sing, I don't know what will, right? That's kind of where they're at. And so the, the magnitude, the significance of how they have been delivered, like this puts it on display. Like in their mind, this isn't just a, we didn't just catch good weather, low tide, and walk across. Like, we were supernaturally delivered through, the act through actual hell and death. Like, God did that for us. He delivered us from that. That is how they're looking at it. And that sounds strange to us, but to the Israelites who were there and looking at it and witnessing it, this is what it was. They literally experienced and came out of death. 
and they stand on the other side and they're like, wow, God, that's amazing. And if we look at the fact that Jesus is the ultimate exodus in what he does for us, this that we just talked about, how significant that is, it, it, it pales in comparison to how significant the work of Jesus is in what he has done for us. Because guess what? The Israelites that were there that day, they're all dead. Like, but Jesus has offered an eternal solution to a problem that has plagued humanity since we've existed, right? A death problem. Like he has, he has not only fixed our death problem, he has given us his Holy Spirit and he has delivered us from death and given us a tool to bring new life into this broken, sinful world that we are in. Like that, I want you to see that that is the magnitude of, of what has happened to you if you were following Jesus. That is the magnitude of that. Yes, the fact that you chose to trust Jesus, the fact that you are here this morning is extremely and eternally and unidentifiably significant. Does everybody see that this morning? Very, very significant. And so if you ever find yourself wondering, like, man, does this thing even matter? Yes, it matters a lot. Because what we just read is crazy. All the elements that are a part of it is crazy. But what Jesus did for us is so much greater. So much, on such a, a much unfathomably larger scale is greater than what has happened here in this story. And on the same note, New Testament language that we use all the time, delivered, salvation, redeemed, all of those are words that stem from the Exodus. Like it's borrowed language. The apostles, when they're describing what Jesus did, they're using Exodus language. It's the, they're looking at it as the same thing. It's a, it's a continuation of what God has already been doing, right? And we're in the, you know, with the Bible and people like uh, Jacob, when they describe the last days, that's where we're at, where we're waiting for the, the final Exodus from our present world that we are in. Like that is where we're at. And so that language, it all comes from that because it's all one recapitulating idea, exile and exodus, God delivering his people. And also, and this is just a fun thing. So uh, what verse is that in? Verse two, uh, you don't have to go there. Oh, you already got it. Ryan, you were on your A game this morning. Thank you for your screen ministry. Um, before I even looked up, it was there. But uh, verse two says, the Lord is my strength, or I'm sorry, this isn't right. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. If you needed anything else, this is really cool, right? The term Yeshua, which translates to salvation in this passage and pretty much every other passage, it literally, in Greek, it would be Jesus. In English, it would be Jesus, right? Like that, like literally, it says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Jesus. That's literally what it says in Exodus right now. And we wonder why Jesus was given the name that he was given. Because when people encountered this man called Jesus, and they think about that word, Yeshua, or in, in, in Greek culture, Jesus, right? Like, they're thinking about Exodus. They're thinking about salvation. Like, it automatically attaches, it, it attaches him to this idea. Super cool. I just wanted to throw that in there. So, in other words, just to cap off that whole idea, we're doing pretty good on time here. The new life we have found in Christ has implications far greater and far more significant than this event right here, as significant as it may be. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we no longer be slaves to sin. 
For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been saved. We've been delivered. God has supernaturally rescued us from the death that we all deserved. So what happens now, right? We now find ourselves in the same shoes as the Israelites. What happens now? Well, what happens now is we, we read forward in the story, past the Song of Moses, and again, go back and read into that joint. That is so, it's such good stuff. Um, sorry, I'm a youth pastor, so I use millennial language or Gen Z language a lot. Um, it's just part of, my, part of my thing now. It's my thing. Um, so why aren't things going my way, right? Let's look at the next chapter of their journey. Verse 22 says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went out uh, three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah, which means bitterness in Hebrew. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now think about this for a second. Everything that we just said, right? Supernatural deliverance, death to life, radical transition. And then immediately following, three days, no water. What are you doing, God? Didn't you just deliver us? Didn't we just watch you squash the Egyptian army that was following us? And now here we are. We've been walking in the wilderness, which we've never been before for three days. And you can't like give us some water to drink. Like, and then they're like, oh, thank heavens, we found a spring to drink from. And they go to drink out of it, and they're like, this is literally undrinkable water. <laughs> like, talk about a, imagine, like, seeing off in the distance, like, yes, there's a pool of water to drink from. And you run, and you get in there, and you get down to drink from it, and you take a drink, and you just spit it right out, and you're like, this is terrible. Like, this is Dundalk water. No offense if you're from Dundalk, <laughs> Right. It's like uh, Mr. Pete uh, walking from uh, Top Golf last night from the Horseshoe Garage to Top Golf, and there's that little, like I don't know why it's there, but it's like this little thing that's just full of trash in the water, and it just smells horrific. <laughs> um, Baltimore City, right? But um, but that's what I imagine this water probably tasted like, Mr. Pete. It's probably something like that. Um, but imagine the just like discouragement and dismay. If you're an Israelite and you're like, man, like God delivered us. This is so cool. Like we're, we're a new people. This is a new beginning. It's a fresh start and boom, no water. And then boom, bitter water. You're probably going to start to wonder, man, things really aren't going my way. Like what, what the heck is going on? Right. For lack of a better term. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what I would do in this scenario, except probably just go take a nap because that's how I handle stress. Um, maybe I'm not the only one, but, um, that's, that's what I do. And so when we look at this three days, no water, they finally find some, it's bitter. How do we make sense of this? Like in their journey in our own journey, when we encounter bitterness in life, when we encounter hardship, when we're going through things that we're like, man, like I thought following Jesus was supposed to be all good. Like, why am I experiencing things like this? Especially when we look at it and we're like, it really seems like God is doing this to me. Like, it's not like it's not something I did. It's not really like something somebody else has done. It's just like circumstantially, it really seems like he's doing this to me. How do we make sense of that? 
Any ideas? Because I can't. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, the, I think there's some wisdom to be offered here in this chapter. How do we make sense of it? God saved them from certain deaths. Shouldn't he be able to take care of their basic needs? And that's just it, though. That question is just it. He can meet their needs, but they wanted their needs met on their terms. That's the difference. The Israelites wanted water. They wanted it now. They wanted it yesterday, right? And the Lord said, hang on a second. There's a, there's a reason why there's a delay. There's a reason why this is happening to you. And if you would just slow down and trust, right? Because that's been the issue since chap- Genesis chapter 3. It's been a trust and a faith issue with humanity. We don't, you know, we believe, we see, right? Adam saw and, and walked with God in the Garden of Eden, but did not trust him enough to say, you know what, I know that that fruit looks like it's good to eat, but I'm not going to eat it because God said so. It's been a trust issue and a faith issue since day one with us, right? And this is no different. This is their first test in the wilderness that we'll see. So we read verse 25, it says, then he cried out to the Lord, this is Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, And there he tested them. And so we read that and we're like, okay, so God dehydrates them for a couple days for what? To test them, to teach them a lesson? Like, is that what's going on here? Verse 26, and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, love how Moses is rhyming in here, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord, am your healer. What the Israelites viewed as a misfortune, right? That's how they looked at it. They're like, what are you doing, Moses? You brought us out here into the wilderness for for, for us to find no water to drink, like seriously? And then they get to the water that's bitter, and they're like, oh, perfect. Moses finally finds us some water. What a great leader, but we can't drink it. And this is just a recurring theme that's going to keep going. (laughs) And honestly, I feel like over the next couple weeks, you're probably going to get really annoyed with the Israelites because it just keeps happening. They just keep doing this stuff. Um, But... Their misfortune was actually a test. It was a trial given to them with a desired outcome, right? What is God's desired outcome when he chooses to bring hardship into our lives? Because that's the thing, right? We can all agree that, like, we all go through hardship, right? Life's not easy. Can we all agree with that? Yes, life is not an easy thing to do. But yet, how do we know? I was just talking to, uh, I went riding on Friday, and I was talking to this guy I met at the park, and uh, he ended up, he saw the number plate on my bike, and he was like, what's that mean? And I was like, oh, it's a, I was like, there's a Bible scholar that I really love that he passed away recently, and he did a lot of work around this verse. That's my number, yada, yada, yada. And he was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I volunteer for this ministry in my hometown. It's called Water Boys for Jesus. I don't know if it's a real thing. That's what he told me. Uh, sounds really cool, though. But we were just chatting, and he was talking about, uh, he was like, man, you know, I'm just kind of really at this place in my faith where uh, I feel like you know, it's, he's like, I know suffering should be expected as a Christian. He's like, but sometimes I have a hard time delineating, like, is it just suffering because that's life or is it suffering because God is trying to teach me something? And I was like, that's, that's the question of the day right there, man. I was like, I don't, uh, I was like, I don't really know. I don't really know how to, how to delineate that. I don't know how to, you know, I was like, all I know is that Jesus promised suffering and he promised to do a work through it. Um, but when we look at, when we look at this story, when we look at the fact that This hardship was deliberately like God inserted this into their journey and he's working through it in their lives. Um, He he has a desired outcome. 
And so I think when, when we're looking at life and when we're looking at what's going on and we say, man, why aren't things going my way? Why does this keep happening? Like, why, you know, I, I don't understand. And what we, we have to look at it regardless of whether we think that the Lord's doing something against us because we deserve it, right? And by the way, if you're watching online, whoever pushed the cart into my minivan yesterday at Hobby Lobby, you're getting it. It's coming to you. Um, DJ, I need you to look at my van. Can you help me buff that out? <laughs> um, but, um, you know, but regardless of how we look at it, regardless of how you slice it, um, our response should be the same, right? The Lord wants to teach us something, and he wants to grow us through the things that we go to. And uh, I think James chapter 1 has a lot of wisdom to offer in that regard. He says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So there's, a, there's a, an outcome, right? And verse 4, he says, uh, <clears throat> And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all, generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask, he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts it, or the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James kind of lays it out. And if you've never read the book of James, it's like uber practical, right? He's just, he lays it out and everything in there, you're like, dude, that, like I track with that. That totally makes sense. Um, and this is one of those times where he's writing a letter and, you know, the church was being persecuted in the first century. Uh, James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, we believe. And the Jerusalem church was persecuted and scattered, right? And he's writing this letter and he's like, hey, listen, the persecution, the struggle that you're enduring, he's like, don't be, don't be discouraged. Don't be, don't be upset. Don't be bitter. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why can James say something like that? Why can he look at the struggles of his brother or his brothers and his sisters and say, hey, what you're going through, you should be joyful for it. How can he say that? And that is the upside down nature of the gospel and the upside down nature of Christianity is just when you think it's the worst, God is performing something beautiful behind the scenes. And when we look at our lives, when we look at the lives of the Israelites, we see that playing out, especially in this passage here, right? When the Lord's testing them, it says, uh, let me go back here to my verse. It's, uh, you know, God's like, oh, the water's bitter. No problem. Just make it sweet, right? That's the, faith was the answer, right? Like, it, you know, the Israelites were like, we're going to die out here. This is terrible. And God's like, oh, just take that branch and throw it in the water. It's real, real simple, guys. And Moses does it. And what's interesting about that, right? And we've talked about waters being a picture of chaos and death. And Jesus, you know, the Messiah, he happens to be depicted and, and called in the, in the minor prophets. They call him the branch. His name will be the branch, Zechariah said. And it's funny that Moses throws a branch into these bitter, bitter waters and it becomes sweet. And in the same way, and I'm, again, I hate to over-allegorize, right? But it's really hard to not see this stuff. When, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's really hard to not see it in this passage that the, one of the underlying themes here is Jesus makes, Jesus makes the bitter things sweet. The, the prize in this life is not what the Lord can give us. It is the Lord himself. He is the prize. 
And when we look at the story and how, you know, the Lord's like, take that branch, you throw it in the water, and it's going to be sweet and you can drink it. You know, they literally, like the living waters, right? Like they were, you know, the Israelites were given new life because of this thing that the Lord instructed Moses to do. And so when we look at this, you know, I think it's really important to look at the trials and the struggles of our lives and see like, hey, what's the, what, what is the desired outcome? Like what, what am I going to come out with on the other side of this that I didn't have when I went into it? What is the Lord trying to do? And if we keep that perspective, if we, if we keep that in our minds, I think that we'll be at peace, right? Because Jesus said that he gives peace that passes all understanding. How does that work? It happens because we're like, hey, Lord, I don't like this. This is really uncomfortable. The situation really sucks, but I trust you. And I trust that, you know, whether, whether I'm getting this because I've, I've done something that deserves, you know, uh, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm reaping what I've sown. I don't know if it's that or I don't know if it's just you're, you're trying to teach me something. Whatever it is, Lord, I trust you. And I trust that on the other side of it, I trust that I'm going to be better for it. I trust that I'm going to grow beyond where I was before I went into the struggle. And the Bible also says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And if you're a parent, and I, man, I do a lot of discipline right now with this three-year-old. Oh, my gosh. Every day, every day, man, <laughs> this kid wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. Um, and I'm like, Where, you, cho- you woke up and chose violence today, huh? Okay, I guess that's what it's going to be. Um, but when you discipline as a parent, you don't discipline because you want to, to, to hurt or, or hurt your child's feelings or, or hurt them physically. That's not why we discipline. And if you do, you got a problem. <laughs> but we discipline because there's a desired outcome on the other side. Like we want to train behaviors and mindsets into our children that make them better. Not just like you messed up, boom, trip you, hit you on the ground, right? It's not what we do. And sometimes, like, we were trying to teach Ruby how to ride a scooter, like, two weeks ago. And we were just letting her ride in our driveway because people think my street's like the Daytona 500. Um, so we used the driveway. But, um, you know, she was getting the hang of it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to let you roll. It's like a downhill slope. And she was going, like, diagonally towards the grass. And I was like, she's going to eat it. Like, 100% she's going to go over the bars. And I let it happen. <laughs> Not because I wanted to see her get hurt, but because I knew... Now, on the other side of that, and she didn't get hurt. She was fine, not even a scrape. Um, Before you call CPS, everything's good. Um, (laughs) um, And if you do call CPS, my name is Matt Robinson. Um, (laughs) um, But everything was good. But now she knows, man, if I hit that grass at a wrong angle, that's going to go bad for me. It was a lesson learned. There was a desired outcome, right? And so that's how the Lord looks at us. He doesn't, you know, when we mess up, you know, the Bible says, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's a farming analogy. Um, but when the Lord gives us what we deserve for what we do, it's not because, like, well, you deserve it. Here you go. He's like, listen, like, this, this is a lesson that you need to learn from. Like, that's the, that's the mentality. And so whatever the situation is in your life, whatever you're going through, understand that the struggles that we endure, like, there's a desired outcome. And so that begs the question, what is that desired outcome? Which flows into the question that we asked in the beginning. What does God want for me? And we're going to kind of come to a close with this idea um, here. We're getting close to, we're 10.09, so 10.15, I'm done. Um, what does God want for me, right? And if you've been a Christian for a long time or a short period of time, this is the question that we all want to know. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, I'm, I'm fresh, just got baptized. Like, you know, let's roll. I'm going to get in here. I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to do the thing. 
And maybe you've been around for a long time and you're like, man, I just, I don't know what my place is around here anymore. I don't know, I don't know how I can serve Jesus, you know, in, in the church anymore. I don't, I don't know what I can do. What does God want from me? What does he want for me? And so God's desire for his people then, Israelite and pre-Israelite, and now is the same, Eden. That was God's desire. His ultimate desire was what was pictured in the Garden of Eden. Look again at the Song of the Sea in uh, verse 17. He says this, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. It was said that Yahweh would bring Israel to his mountain, the mountain of his inheritance, Right? And when we look at this, this terminology, Eden is described as both a garden and a mountain. And I think there's, uh, I think there's some kind of foreshadowing going on here where they're talking about Mount Zion. Um, but you, you, when you read this, you get, a different, you get a different feel than them just talking about a physical place. Uh, you get the feeling that there's something larger, more grander scale going on. And in the same way that we talked about how they described the Egyptians going into the Red Sea. Right? It's the same idea. There's surface level. And then there's like the cosmic level of what they're describing because of the vocabulary they use. And so the very end of the journey here, and this is where like, they're pl- like God's going to plant them like a tree, right? A tree of life. Like that's kind of, the, uh, kind of the, the thing going on here. And that's before, right? He uses a tree to make their water sweet. And so the, the tree stuff, like it, it's a theme that permeates and it just, you know, it's in the whole thing. Um, and then let's look at this, uh, this last leg of their journey here in this chapter uh, but at the very end, in verse uh, 27, it says this. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the symbolism here, and again, this is just a glaze over. There's so much more that can be developed in this idea. Um, but the symbolism here is just crazy. 12 and 70, they're both very significant numbers in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, 12 usually meaning the, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That's a big one. And 70, if you read Genesis, it's either 10 or 11. I'm kind of blanking on which one right now, but it's right before, uh, right after the Tower of Babel, uh, where God, he disinherits and divides up the nations. And it gives you a list of all the nations before God calls Abraham out of Babylon. And there's 70 of them. And the Bible, you know, basically the narrative of scripture in, you know, from Genesis to Revelation is that, you know, God disinherits the 70, the nations of the earth that are not Israel, right? He disinherits all of them and he chooses Abraham and he says, Abraham, the 12 tribes that are going to come from you, that's the vehicle that I'm going to use to reclaim the 70. Like that's the, that's the big picture of scripture, right? From Genesis to Revelation, the end of Revelation the nations have been reclaimed. Eden has been restored, literally, right? Like from, you know, from cover to cover, bookends. Eden is a bookend on, on both ends of scripture. And it's a theme that it's just woven throughout the whole thing as a constant reminder, like, hey, listen, this is what God wants. They arrive at a, <laughs> they literally arrive at a little Eden on their journey. What do I mean by that? It's as if God is showing them, hey, look, this is what I want for you. Like you passed the test. Like you did what I said to do when you got to the bitter waters and they were sweet again. Like you passed the test. Congratulations, Israel. That's probably the only one they're going to pass. <laughs> but, you know, and then they, the, the next leg of their journey, they make it to a little Eden and God's like, listen, this is what I want for you. What I want for you is to be in fellowship with me. What I want for you is to live a life that is abundant and fruitful 
right? Like, that, that's what God wants. And if you recall back, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, let me take a water break here. My throat's a little dry. But what this paradise, what this glimpse of paradise puts in view is that the real prize of paradise is God's successful partnership with humanity. The 12 and 70 thing, right? What is that? You know, 12, 12 tribes, 70 nations, we get the whole thing. But the picture is those two numbers together, right? The story of the Old Testament is the 70 nations are constantly attacking Israel. Like, they constantly are in war and conflict. They get taken into exile. Like, they get wiped out by the Assyrians. There's constant conflict. And God's like, hey, listen, 12 and 70, all together, with me here. Doesn't matter if we're in the wilderness, paradise is wherever I am, right? Like, that's what... That's kind of what's being portrayed here. Let's look at, uh, this is uh, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, right? But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's the first time that's been said before. Before it was just Israel. Now Jesus says, Go make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The great commission being accomplished is the definition of successful divine human partnership. God's desire, what does God want from me? God wants to partner with you. God's desire is that, like, it's not a, it's not a ritualistic, like, I go to church, I go to small group, I serve, that's it, right? God says, no, listen, every moment, of every day. My desire is to have a partnership with you. My desire is to do a work through you to bring this idea of Eden back to its reality, right? The church is the vehicle that God is using. Do y'all realize that? Like the, you know, when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, like the church is the, church is the vehicle that spreads the gospel, that completes the great commission. It's not just a place that we go to. Like we are the church, in this little community and in, in Bully's Quarters right here and around because people drive from all over, right? Like, it is our responsibility to share the gospel, to complete the Great Commission, to share the words of Jesus with the community around us because that is the only thing. That is the divine human partnership. That is what we're supposed to do, right? And Eden will be restored because we will be faithful at doing that. We'll trust the Lord that like one day, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter, you know, what's going on because the Lord's trying to grow me. Why is he trying to grow me? So I can reach more people. So I can spread the gospel to more people so that the world can be restored. The here and the now, the struggles that we experience, the turmoil in the world, it will all be put to an end. But it won't, put, it won't be put to an end until the Great Commission is completed. That's the idea. God wants to partner with you. And so... What does that look like for you? And I'm so glad you asked, as somebody who leads a couple different ministries. I'm so glad you asked why, how God wants you to partner with him, right? And it looks different for everybody. How can I be involved? The question that we should ask ourselves, how can I be involved in the ministry of my local church, right? Because the church is the vehicle. The church is how God wants to serve the world around us and to spread the message of the gospel. So how can we serve our church body? How can we be, how can we be a bigger part of the big picture, Ask yourself that question, and that answer isn't going to come to you right away, but ask yourself, how can I use the talents and the abilities that the Lord's given me to advance the mission of my local church, right? Because it's not just about our church. 
right? There's other churches in the area, and we want them to be successful too because they're also sharing the gospel because that's like it's what we're supposed to do, right? There's a lot of people. There's plenty of people for everybody. How can I be involved in the ministry of my local church? So as we come to a close here, just to kind of wrap things up, a few practical takeaways. Number one, your salvation is unfathomably important. It is significant. The fact that you follow Jesus, the fact that you're here, the fact that you serve. A lot of you are in here, you're going to serve at the 11 o'clock, right? That, that is so just eternally significant. We, can, we, we will never even know the significance of what we do in this life until we get to heaven. We just won't. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, uh, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is God's desire. He said, uh, you know, I don't want anybody to perish. I don't want anybody to have the fate of the Egyptians getting swallowed up by the waters. That's not, that's not God's desire. He said, I want everybody to come to repentance. And that kind of revolves back around to we talk about what we love, right? If we love Jesus, we'll talk about Jesus. This morning, I, was, uh, I put my, my son in his car seat, and I told Ruby, I was like, all right, talk to him while I go upstairs and finish getting ready. And I came back down, and she was like, I was talking to Mavi about Slurpees. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. Love you for that. She loves Slurpees after we went to the zoo the other day. And uh, so she loved them so much that she was like, I'm going to tell my brother all about Slurpees. And in the same way, like Jesus, you know, those of us who follow Jesus, who know him, you know, thinking about the magnitude of what he's done for us and who he is, it should just roll off of our tongue. Like, hey, listen, Jesus is awesome. Like, I just want to, and like everybody gets in that, like there's that phase of your life where you're like the weird Christian, right? Like that was me in high school. I didn't really know what to do with myself. And so I like, you know, it was really weird. I feel bad for all the people that I tried to bring to Jesus in high school because they were like, wow, you're in a cult, bro. And I was just trying to, yeah, and I probably was <laughs> at the time. Um, but I, I was just trying to share my faith. I didn't know how to do it, um, but I wanted to do it. And so we talk about the things we love. So number one, your salvation is unfathomably important. Number two, if things aren't going your way, that's okay because they're going his way. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts, uh, my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led with peace. The Lord's doing his thing. He said, my word will not return void. And what he's doing in our lives, whether it feels good or it feels like it's bad, he wants to do a work in us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So if things aren't going your way, that's okay. He's still doing his thing. And number three, and finally, God wants to partner with you. I know we just talked about it, so I won't beat the, I'm not gonna beat the dead horse uh, but he really does. His desire from Genesis chapter one to the end of Revelation, his desire is to partner with humanity. And how we can do that now is we can serve our community and reach people for Jesus through our local church. And this, uh, this Bible verse says this. Like, I think you got one more in there, Ryan. Um, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. <laughs> takes a turn real quick. <laughs> and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen, choose to take a step for what the Lord wants in your life. The Bible says that if you draw near, he draws near. God does not force himself or push himself on anybody. Um, he wants the, you know, the relationship to be mutual. He wants you to want him in the same way that he wants you. And so choose to take that step this morning. And if you don't know Jesus, listen, he's already taken the first step. He's waiting. He's right here with his arms out this morning to say, hey, listen, I want to partner with you. I want to do life with you. I want to be like, I want to be, I want to be with you. I want to be in there. I want to do all the things with you. I want to give you peace. I want to do works in your life. Thank you for watching and joining us for our church online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments, send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.